We've got two fantastic guests. Writer Mackenzie Lee will talk about her brand new book, Winter Soldier Cold Front, based on the Marvel Comics character. Later on, we'll be talking with Christine Hannafalk, a real-life biologist, biochemist, talking about the science behind Daredevil and her book, Beam Matt Murdock. Stand by. We're talking TV, comics and movies, and video games. And if you don't know, Star Trek from Star Wars will try to explain. driving around the greater St. Louis area tonight, hearing us on the big 550 KTRS. Hello to you. Thank you very much for tuning in. If you are trying to stream us, unfortunately, we are not online tonight because this is a pre-recorded show. I'm not in the studio at the Gold Tower at KTRS right now. I am in Pensacon, Pensacola, Florida, a great event down there. I will bring my wrap-up next week, let you know how things went, who I got to talk to, all the cool things. Hopefully you're following me on social media, because if you were, then you probably saw a lot of the shenanigans I got up to on Instagram, at Geeked Me Radio, on Twitter, at Geeked Me Radio, Facebook.com slash Geeked Me Radio, and of course, if you uh, check out our website, geektomeradio.com, we always try to update you on this cool stuff that we have going on there as well. Uh, that being said, even though this is a pre-recorded show, this is not old material. I would not do that to you. I love my listeners, and I'm giving you a brand new show with two brand new guests. You've not heard these interviews before, but I'm very excited to share them with you. Uh, two fantastic people who are in the world of Marvel Comics, Mackenzie Lee, who's a New York Times bestselling author uh, with his great book, about Bucky, the Winter Soldier, uh, we all know from the Marvel comics. And then later on, we'll talk with Christine Hannafalk, who is a biotech engineer, biochemist, very scientific brain. And she got into the science behind Daredevil, his radar vision, how that would work in a fantastic book called Bean Matt Murdock, the... Uh, I'm sorry, being Matt Murdock, one fan's journey into the science of Daredevil. Fascinating reads, both of these, uh, whether you're wanting to get into the kind of more brainiac science stuff or if you're just wanting a cool story set back in the Cold War era with Mackenzie Lee's book. Either way, these are great interviews that you're not going to want to miss, and they're starting as soon as I click on the other mouse right now. Right now we're talking with New York Times bestselling author Mackenzie Lee, brand new book out, and if you're a Marvel Comics fan, you're going to want to pick it up. The Winter Soldier Cold Front. Mackenzie, how are you? I am so happy to be talking to you. Glad to have you on the show. Uh, I was just thinking to myself when I was uh, going over some research for the interview, I said, boy, you're my third New York Times bestselling author this year. I'm almost tempted to change the format to a literary podcast and radio show. (laughs) 
third this year. It's only February. I know it's been, it's been crazy. All the new books coming out, I guess. But I was so excited for this one. Obviously, yeah. uh, I'm a Marvel Comics fan uh, with uh, Captain America and Winter Soldier. We got a big taste of him hitting the big screen, obviously, with the second Captain America movie and then going on forward. Uh, if you would, talk a little bit about your introduction to the Marvel world, to comic books in general. So I desperately wanted to be a comic book reader when I was a kid. Um, I was sort of a nerd before it was a cool thing to be a nerd, before you could, like, <laughs> walk into Target and find Marvel Marvel stuff prominently right. displayed on the shelves. Um, so I, I wanted to be a comic book reader but didn't know how to be and would go into these comic book stores and sort of be glowered at by uh, middle-aged men who didn't really want me there. Um, and didn't want to help me learn how to read, uh, read comic books, that is. And so I would, I would pick up these comic books and sort of be like, okay, so I know who Spider-Man is, but I don't understand why we're in the middle of a story. I don't know who these characters around him are. And I just, I didn't understand it and didn't know how to read them. And then, uh, when the movie started coming along, the Marvel movies, like so many people, I suddenly had this foundation that I knew who the characters were. I knew what their sort of backstories were. And so I was able to more easily access comic books and to understand these stories and the first comic books I really got into were uh, Ed Brubaker's run of The Winter Soldier, um, which is such a great, great uh, Cold War spy pastiche um, within a comic book and, and drew on so many sort of uh, literary references that I really, really like while also being this great, this great comic book superhero adventure um, and also dealing with really fascinating questions about identity. So I sort of actually my my first real comic book love was was Buffy Barnes and the Winter Soldier, and I sort of imprinted on on that Ed Brubaker run before I was before I was even really a, a comic book fan. That's a great. So I run. feel very lucky to have come full circle. Oh, it's so good! It's so good. I was just thinking the other day. I was like, oh, I really should have reread it before I before <laughs> I did all my events because I'm just going to spend the next couple of weeks just gushing about it. And your last book, you did another Marvel book, obviously, before this one for Gamora Nebula, Sisters in Arms. When when you're doing the books, do you pitch the idea? Do they come to you kind of knowing your background say, hey, how would you feel about writing a story with these characters? How did that come about? So uh, in in within the publishing house, they had sort of generated this idea of wanting to do a a series of young adult novels about Marvel antiheroes and sort of morally gray characters. Uh, that are sort of fan favorites, but don't maybe get to be the the heroes of the movies uh, because because of their morally grayness. Um, and they wanted to do sort of teenage teenage versions of these characters and see them a little bit earlier in their their origin stories than we have before. Um, and right when the, the the project got budget approval and they said, you know, you can hire a writer now. Uh, my book, The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue, had just come out and somebody was reading it and said, hey, I think this would be a good person to to bring on for this project. Um, so it was really tremendously lucky that I was sort of in the right place at the right time. Um, and I sort of expected that it would be, they would, they would say, okay, we would like you to write a book about Nebula and Gamora doing this in this context. Here's the plot. You can, you can maybe like make up a name and that's sort of the contribution you get to have. Um, but I was so surprised and delighted that they really wanted me to be a, a true collaborator on this. And I got to bring them my, my ideas and my, my mood boards and my references and then, what they would provide in, in return is sort of the, the comic know-how. And I was, I was thinking about with Gamora Nebula, I said, okay, I wanted, they want to do like a sci-fi book because they're, they're sci-fi characters more than Winter Soldier is more historical. Um, with Nebula and Gamora, they said, okay, we want to do a sci-fi. And I said, okay, my favorite sci-fi, I want to do a space Western. I want to do something like Firefly. I want to do Mad Max. I want to talk about 
capitalism and strip mining and uh, do an old West pastiche and talk about fanatical religion and, and all of these different things. And they said, great. Have you thought about using the universal church of truth? Have you thought about bringing in Adam Warlock? Have you thought about framing it with the grandmaster? Here's 50 to a hundred comic book references we can give you. <laughs> We're going to set uh, like scan and send you individual pages of comic books. Here's some ways you can bring in the infinity stones and the floor that already exists. And so it was really like a true collaborative process, which I, which I really didn't expect going in because I thought these, these sort of can the canon would be so carefully guarded and dictated to me. And instead they really let me, they let me bring my own voice to it. And they, they knew that they had hired me to write my versions of these characters. And I, I really feel truly so lucky that I got to do that. So the great thing is now, since you're doing this as, as a profession, you can go buy all the comic books. Oh, this is reference work. I have to write this off of my taxes now. I'm sorry. I need oh, this. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, I've, had to, I've had to explain to my accountant every year and be like, no, it actually is for work that I'm buying comic books. I actually can write this stuff off. That's brilliant. <laughs> I mean, that's living the me. dream right there. <laughs> for real, for real. And then with this new one, obviously highlighting Bucky, the Winter Soldier, uh, you've got a BA in history. So I assume you were able to lean quite a bit on that because there's a lot of obviously historical references because it alternates between taking place in 1941 and 1954 as we kind of see, uh, you know, the whole thing with with Bucky, an aspect of himself that we haven't had the chance to see before. So that must have been nice to have that history background, I would assume. Yeah, I mean, I my my history specialization, for lack of a better word, like I mostly studied England under the Wars of the Roses in the 1400s, which doesn't really apply to the the origin story of Bucky Barnes. So I often feel like what what uh, a history degree prepares you for is how to do the research and how to find the answers, rather than than what the answers specifically are. Mm. But I've been a I've been a lifelong a lifelong reader of historical fiction, and a lot of really great historical fiction takes place and is set during World War II. So I came in with a little bit of knowledge. My most favorite book in the world is a World War II um, spy novel that I often reference as sort of an inspiration for, for this. This is a book called Codename Verity, um, which, you know, if, if I, I would really love it if everybody would read that book almost more than I want everybody to read my own books. Like, it's just so great. Um, but I should probably stop. Just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend all week shilling Codename Verity <laughs> and the Ed Brubaker Winter Soldier and keep forgetting to talk about my own books. Um, but so I, I came in with some references, but there was still so much uh, so much research I did specifically for this story I wanted to tell. Um, you can you can't sort of universally apply blanket knowledge at a, at a certain point. You have to do more specific research to the story you are trying to tell. And I, having read the book, I your publisher was very kind to send a copy of it, and I was reading through it, and I, I think I blew through the first nine chapters in one sitting. The way you write. It's almost like you're reading a comic book because I'm visually seeing the pictures. You've got really, it's somehow you're able to provide a lot of detail so you can vividly picture it in your mind without getting bogged down in the detail. Like I feel like Anne Rice, for example, loved the Vampire Chronicles, but she goes into the the temperature of the marble floor underneath Lestat's feet. And I'm like, uh, it's too much. <laughs> you, you kind of walk this perfect line that I've not seen another author do where it's descriptive enough to give you a perfect visual picture without bogging down the details. How did you kind of find that, uh, that balance when you're writing? Oh, thank you. That's, that's an incredibly kind thing to say. Um, I mean, for me, it, those, those, those details that make up the world are so important, especially in historical fiction. But at the end of the day, the thing that makes people come back is not the feeling of the marble floor beneath Lestat's feet. They're interested <laughs> in people walking on that marble floor. 
And I often, I, I have readers, uh, friends and, and my editor and things like that who will come in and, and sort of pull me back where I'm, where I'm over explaining. I remember having a friend read an early draft of my book, The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue, which at the time was, was too long. And I was like, I got to cut out about 10,000 words in order to make this, this publishable. And she came back to me and said, I think if you took one line out of every like loving description of the palaces and the skylines and whatever, I think you, I think you would cut out a significant amount. And she was right. So sometimes it can just be about having someone else come in and being an objective source for you. Because often we're not, I mean, it's not even often, it's all the time. We're not objective sources about our own writing. We think that everything we write is precious and, and that's why we put it there. And, and it, it all feels very essential. And sometimes it just takes someone else walking in and saying, okay, well, actually, we don't really need to know this bit to, to just help you figure out what, excuse me, what's important. And you mentioned uh, The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue, which you've won several awards for that book. Um, then you've got ones like Winter Soldier, which you're a fan of the Brubaker run, so I'm assuming it's very exciting to be able to write these Marvel characters. In general, what excites you most about being a writer? And we're going to take a quick pause with that question lingering. We'll come right back. We'll hear the answer from writer, author Mackenzie Lee. You're listening to Geek to Me Radio on the Big 550 KTRS. Please stand by. Hey, this is Yuri Lowenthal, but you may know me recently as Peter Parker slash Spider-Man. And you're listening to geek to me Radio. Welcome back to the show. geek to me Radio, heard here every Sunday on the Big 550 KTRS. I'm your host, James Enstall. I want to make sure we tell you about our official comic book sponsor, Bugs Comics and Games. Check them out on their website, BugsComicsAndGames.com. If you're looking to sell a collection, buy new comics, buy old comics and back issues, need some supplies, you're going to rebag and board your current collection, check out Bugs Comics and Games. If you're in the greater St. Louis area, St. Charles area, hopefully you've already paid Larry a visit right there on Bryan Road. Between uh, You can get to it from Highway 70 or from the page extension. Either way, get out there and check him out. They've always got a rotating inventory of new stuff because he's buying stuff all the time. Stuff goes out the door as quick as it comes in. If you're looking to get a, a rare back issue, he's got an Avengers number four featuring the first Silver Age appearance of Captain America there in his glass display case that you walk in and along the counter there. All sorts of cool stuff. Old games. He's got all sorts of back issues. Dollar books. He's got books priced affordably, but then you've also got, if you're looking for a rare one, chances are Larry might have it. And if you ask him to track one down, he's done that for me before. I was looking for a book. He's able to track it down and get it for me. Uh, He's almost like a comic book archaeologist in that method. But check him out. And also, if you're on Facebook, give them a like on Facebook because Bugs Comics and Games is on Facebook too. Bugs Comics and Games, Facebook.com. Check them out there. Give that page a like. Very proud to have them as the official comic book sponsor here on geek to me radio again this is a pre-recorded show i am either on my way back from pensacon in pensacola florida or i may have just landed or i may have missed my flight completely and i'll be stuck there till monday who knows either way a brand new interview with new york times best-selling author Mackenzie lee we've been talking about her book winter soldier cold front which is a great story if you uh, get a chance to read it i highly recommend it before we took that last break we asked her what excites her about being a writer um, at the end of the day, like I'm, I'm a storyteller. I like to tell stories. That's what initially attracted me to studying history was that I wanted to tell stories of, of, of people in the past and people who came before us and um, 
people whose lives often feel so, so different from ours until you start breaking them down to these sort of universal truths about humanity. Um, and I love the way that storytelling teaches us things about ourselves um, and creates empathy. I love books as, as sort of empathy machines and helping us relate to people whose, whose situations previously felt un- understandable and unaccessible to us. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, I write because I don't know how to do anything else. I'd be a really lousy plumber. <laughs> And with, with uh, the studying you went through in school and everything, did you kind of know writing was going to be where you wanted your life to head? Was that always kind of in the back of your mind or did you, I, uh, we, well, I've talked no, to actors and directors and they find it later in life. I didn't find it later necessarily, but I, I definitely didn't go into secondary. I really thought I was going to be a historian. I wanted to get a PhD and be a professor and, and, and write academic papers. And then eventually had a professor sort of tell me, my my writing wasn't very well suited to academia. She was like, you can't write in your papers, you can't write dialogue for Richard III because you don't know who said that. I was like, well, I would really like to be writing dialogue for Richard III. And she said, well, maybe then you should be writing writing something else. Um, and and I sort of, I, I wasn't, I was a big reader growing up uh, and then uh, sort of fell out of love with reading when I had all these classic novels foisted upon me by, by school classrooms. Um, and then when I got back into reading things I loved and things especially that I had loved as a kid, that was when I, I got really into books again. And that sort of happened at the same time that I was feeling kind of lost as a as a, as a a historian. And the two things melded really well. And I was like, oh, yeah, these were the kind of books, these historical fiction were the things that made me fall in love with history. What if instead of trying to write academically, I tried to write, I tried to write fiction and it, it worked out pretty well. And with writing a kind of a spy thriller like this one, Winter Soldier Cold Front, that's outright, if you want, we'll put a link to that if you want to go get it. We always, always, always recommend, please support your local bookstores. Go and see if they can order it for you uh, before you try getting it online. Uh, with writing one like this, I'm, I'm a fan of the Ian Fleming Bond novels and the Cold War setting and everything and the World War II hype. This was interesting because it's not... It's, I don't want to call it an Elseworlds tale, but it, he's got a, I'll just say for it so I don't spoil it, he's got a slightly different relationship with Captain America in this uh, when when James Barnes first signs up for the war effort. Did they give you any stipulations? It's like, hey, you can't mention this, please don't go this, don't reference this particular <laughs> run, or was it pretty much free reign, here's the character, do with it what you will? No, there were some, there were some very unexpected and arbitrary uh uh, things that I could and couldn't talk about and things that I could and couldn't say. So most of the, most of Bucky's backstory in the, in the book is drawn from the comics. He sort of in the, in the movies, they re reimagined his backstory that he grew up in Brooklyn with Steve and they were best friends. And he was kind of the good guy who was always looking out for, for scrappy Steve Rogers. When in the comics, Bucky is, he's an army brat, he's an orphan, he's raised on the, the army base and he's kind of a, he's kind of a scoundrel. Um, and has all this sort of righteous indignation as a teenager that he doesn't quite know what to do with. And um, that was more the the backstory we talked about drawing um, because they, they wanted the, the books to fall sort of more in line with the, with the comic canon rather than the, than the film canon. Um, so yeah, his relationship with Captain America, as he sees him as sort of initially doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know who Steve Rogers is. And um, he's, thinks Captain America is this sort of empty figurehead and it, it annoys the crap out of him. <laughs> um, and so it's fun to get to sort of write a different, a different relationship to Steve and Bucky than, than most people, most people go into it imagining. 
and I know I've usually asked this question of authors and writers before, because in this day and age, when everything is getting an adaptation, I feel like it's always in the back of people's mind as they're kind of doing stuff. If obviously uh, Sebastian Stan is Winter Soldier, but if we were to cast a young James Barnes to play, like if they were going to make this into a Netflix series or a movie based on your book, do you have someone in mind? Like when you're writing a character, like who'd be a good person to play 17 year old James Barnes? Oh gosh, I'd never thought of that. I always, to me, like the, the, I get asked that every once in a while, like who would play this character in, in an adaptation? And the answer is basically like, essentially these, it feels like casting your friends, like who would play your friends in a movie because these people they feel like real people to me and they feel like 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 I don't know I, it, it doesn't feel like there's an actor analog because it's a it's he's a real person in my head god that makes me sound insane um <laughs> not at all so I don't know I'm also just like I'm not I'm not I'm not hip enough to know to know who the who the young <laughs> the young actors are I'm like my my references mostly come from like the 90s there's nothing um, wrong with that. <laughs> can you think? Can you think of anyone? Oh my gosh! I, I was the, I was thinking like 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 James McAvoy from like Atonement era. Okay, yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Um, yeah, I, I was I, when I'm reading. I'm picturing. I'm still picturing Sebastian Stan, unfortunately. And I'm thinking as I was reading this to myself. Yeah, obviously, it's kind for of the, impossible to to get that out of your brain. Right. So I'm thinking, well, who would play a young Sebastian Stan? Because everyone's talking about how Sebastian Stan should be playing young Luke Skywalker now because they look so much alike. Well, I was going to say, we get, we get 19, 1970s Mark Hamill. There you young, go. <laughs> young Mark Hamill plays young Sebastian Stan, and the world comes full circle. With everything they're doing with uh, motion capture and with uh, you know the, the deep fake now, I'm sure that could be arranged. I'm sure Mark Hamill would love to play <laughs> Winter Soldier. That'd be perfect. I know. Mark, Mark <laughs> Hamill is more thrilled about this arrangement than anyone else. No doubt. And with uh, this being, like I said, kind of a set in a Cold War type spy thriller, uh, did you... When you're doing research, because a lot of the places you reference, you know, uh, the, the the chess, the place where they're playing chess, the hall, and they come out and on the street and they're looking for this pub, were, the, were they kind of like just general directions of where this place is or were any of these actual, like the, the pub they go meet at for when he's getting extracted? Was that an actual pub? How, how did research-wise actual places in the book versus just making up some locations? It ends up being a combination because I tend to get too caught up in the minutia of, of, okay, I have to find the actual pub and then I have to do the actual directions through London. And at the end of the day, like nobody cares. Um, and it's not interesting to read about people navigating through a city. What what people are more interested in is the, the feeling of a place and the emotions that go with it. So the, the pub they go to in that case, the Red Lion, is a real pub that was used as a as a meeting place for spies. Hmm. Um, but I ended up sort of creating a fictionalized version of it. Um, because I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be tied into the, the re, you know, and also too, I think as soon as you start saying like, oh, I'm trying to depict a real place, everybody's got ideas about, well, it actually looks like this. It actually feels like this. It sure. actually, what have you. And that can sometimes pull readers out of the story. So even like they're at the British Museum and in, in the scene just before that, and they're in a real place, which is a British Museum, but in an imagined wing of the, of the museum. So I try and blend, blend real and fake. There's always little tidbits thrown in because I can't help myself. And I think it's fascinating to try and find those, those real places. But at the end of the day, I'll, I'll end up imagining it more often than not only because I, I don't want to get caught up in the, in the minutia. We got to keep that, that good balance. Like you mentioned. Understood. And I know we're, we're coming up in the last of our time here. Uh, my final question, obviously a book like this, 
You've got the research you've got to go into to do it uh, between you know, the conception of the book. How long did this one take uh, from when you were assigned to final publication? And what was the biggest challenge in writing this one for you? The biggest challenge was managing the, the two timelines. because It's half that in 1941, half that in 1954, and managing or, or sort of plotting how to pace them both out so that things were happening concurrently in each of them, but they still worked independently and, and had their own sort of narrative propulsion. I'd never done that before in a book, and it was a great challenge, and it was it was definitely a challenge, but I, I think it ended up working out really well. Um, in terms of how long it took me, I can't even remember because we I, I initially signed on to work with Marvel in 2017, and all three of these books feel like they kind of have all been, they all kind of happened simultaneously, right? So mm. it, it, I wrote three books since 2017, but I and and I I couldn't necessarily parcel out how long each one took because they all sort of happened happened concurrently and I was thinking about all of them all the time. I don't know if that's a super helpful answer, but no, it just makes it even more impressive that you were coming up with you know three separate stories at in roughly the same amount of time. <laughs> that's that's, oh, uh, that's even more impressive. I, I, wow! I wasn't like I wasn't sitting I wasn't sitting down plotting all three of them at the same time. It was like I would think of things while I was working on Loki that I would sort of shuffle into the back of my brain and be like, that would be a cool thing to use later on. This would be when I was working on Nebula and Gamora, which is a two time, or it's not two timelines, two narratives. Um, so it's both of them narrating the same things happening and trying to manage like who knows what at what time and who's making sure I'm not giving, giving people knowledge they don't actually have uh, just because I have it. I remember thinking at the time, like this would be a cool thing to try, but doing it in two different timelines, like two different uh, time periods, what would be, what would be a good vehicle for that? And, and, uh, the Winter Soldier really lent himself to that. So it's it's more it's more like you have something on the front and the front burner and then something sort of simmering on the back burner and it's just about shuffling around the plot. And you've done a great job with shuffling this plot because this this was a uh, like I said a page turner. You've got to check it out. If you're listening to the show right now, make sure you oh, check you. out your local bookshop. If they don't have it on the shelves, ask them to order. You can probably get it through your local comic book store as well, because a lot of times they'll have arrangements where they can get these books that are from uh, Marvel and things like that as well. Where can people find you online if they want to keep up with you, find out more about you, website, social media handles, things like that? Uh, my website is MackenzieLee.com. Um, my social media is the Mackenzie Lee, which is T-H-E-M-A-C-K-E-N-Z-I-L-E-E. You can find me there on Instagram. And if you're listening to this after the fact, in the podcast form, scroll down to the bottom of the page. We'll have links to her website right there so you can keep up with everything from Mackenzie Lee. Thank you so much for your time today. I greatly appreciate talking to you, and hopefully we can have you back on for the next Marvel book. Thank you so much for having me. There she goes, Mackenzie Lee. Make sure to check out that book, Winter Soldier Cold Front. A great read, to be sure. We're going to take another quick commercial break. We're going to come back and begin our interview with Christine Hennefalk talking all about her book, Being Matt Murdock, from Winter Soldier to Daredevil. We're giving you all the Marvel goodness. You're listening to geek to me Radio right here on the Big 550 KGRS. Please stand by. This is Ethan Phillips, the voice of Neelix, and you're listening to geek to me Radio. Welcome back to the show, geek to me Radio. I'm your host, James Enstall. We'll make sure we tell you about... Our premier sponsor, the Greater St. Charles Convention and Visitors Bureau. You know them from the website discoverstcharles.com. That's Discover ST Charles. Lots of cool things always happening over there. Check out the website to see if there's a music event or a an event at the Foundry going on. Like we've talked about the past couple of shows, they've always got something fun happening 
in that area. Great restaurants, great shops, a lot of cool things to see and do, especially with the weather getting warmer. It's only going to get busier out there, so it's a great time to go check it out, get acquainted with the area now, so when you do come back in the summer, you're like a pro. You know exactly which shops you want to hit, which restaurants you're going to stop at for lunch, where you're going to go and explore on that particular day. Uh, Cool time for the whole family. Come check out their Legends and Lanterns event. If you're a Halloween fan, if Christmas is more your thing, Christmas Traditions is coming up again. It'll be here before you know it. A lot of stuff going on in St. Charles. Always a good time. And for everyone, we encourage you to go check it out, whether you're from out of town or locally, right across the Blanchette Bridge there in St. Charles. Main Street, all sorts of things to see and do. If you want to have a good time, check them out, whether you're near or far. Start with the website, discoverstcharles.com. Again, discoverstcharles.com. As we always say, it's an historically good time. And with that, we'll go right to my next guest. Right now, we're talking with Christine Hannafalk about being Matt Murdock, one fan's journey into the science of Daredevil. When I found her on Twitter, I said, this is fascinating because obviously Daredevil a very favorite character of mine ever since the Frank Miller days. Uh, it uh, got his own Netflix series. And you always see in Marvel Comics, Stan Lee and whoever the artist would be would write out how Cyclops' visor works and how you know the, the idea of Spider-Man's web shooters will work. But the science, the physiological science behind Daredevil's radar sense, that's something that Christine has explored in her book. Christine, thanks for your time today. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, you, yeah, this is my favorite topic. So, <laughs> now, how, how did as you, you, as you can tell, <laughs> how did you come across Daredevil? I, I, I should start by saying you've got your education. You're a biotech engineer, correct? That's what you went to school for. Yes, that's what I went to school for. And then I've done a bunch of other things besides that, but that's what I went to school for. And so that was just science naturally, something that's fascinating to you. And how did you stumble across Daredevil of all characters? Well, I mean, it, it was actually, uh, it's a kind of story that a lot of, I think, new or like newish uh, Daredevil fans are hesitant to give. It was actually through the movie. And I'll just give you some background on that. Uh, I'm Swedish, born and raised in Sweden. And uh, I, when as a kid, I read whatever superhero comics were around. And usually just Superman, Spider-Man, a few of those that were actually translated into Swedish and uh, I I love the genre. I love, you know, superhero comics. And, you know, I like I like He-Man and Star Wars and Star Trek and all that kind of thing growing up. So I was kind of into that. And uh, but Daredevil was one of those characters that he had like a shortish run, like in the mid 80s during the middle run uh, that was actually translated in, into Swedish. But I don't think they ever sold that in like, you know, the supermarket or anything. Mm. So I pretty much didn't know that Daredevil existed until the movie came out in 2003. And then it took me another couple of years to even, well, actually I rented it. It even, it didn't even go to the movies. I rented it on, uh, I think it was DVD at this point, but it was, you know, what back when you still rented movies and I rented it and thought it was kind of like, Oh, okay. Interesting. But I, you know, didn't really click with me at that time. And then I think it was on TV like a year or two later, uh, around 2005, and uh, I still, I mean, it's not objectively a great movie, but there was something about the premise of the character that really, really appealed to me. And um, I then found manwithoutfear.com, which is run by Kuljeet Mitra in, in Toronto. And I was kind of reintroduced to just reading comics in general as an adult. I mean, I was almost 30 years old at this, at this point. And 
I just realized that there are all these like other grownups who are into comics and are into Daredevil. And I think within a few months, I had read pretty much everything Daredevil had ever appeared in. Wow. And it, yeah, and it's become this kind of, I'm not, I'm not actually a naturally fanish person. So Daredevil has always been like the one thing for me that I just kind of devoted myself to entirely in terms of just kind of hobbies and interests. So I started my, um, uh, my blog in late 2007. So I just turned 15 years old, um, as a blogger and, um, uh, and, you know, I've been kind of writing and thinking about Daredevil ever since. So, uh, the idea for this book though, came about, I want to say about 10 years ago, because, because of my educational background and my kind of interest in sort of, um, the neuroscience, like what happens when you lose a sense, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It became kind of a natural fit for like my other types of interests anyway. And I started writing more and more about that on my, on my blog. And I also noticed that it actually, um, I was afraid that I was going to bore some people or, or it was going to be like, I was going to become, you know, come across as too nitpicky or, you know, um, uh, things like that. But, but, my readers really responded to it. I always got a lot of comments and encouragement to keep going. And after I've been doing that for a while, I, you know, just got this thought in my head that one day I'm going to, this is going to have to become a book at some point. Mm -hmm. but it, it's been a, it's been a while since. <laughs> so with the, with looking at it from that standpoint, you've obviously, like you said, research, what happens when someone loses mm -hmm. a sense, obviously it was a comic book fantasy. So it's the radioactive chemicals that were splashed on Daredevil, on young Matt Murdock, when the trucks crashed, that caused him to do yeah. this. Much like a radioactive spider is probably going to kill somebody, not actually give them the ability to crawl walls. So it's probably that same right. thing, but it, it, it's that mix of the chemicals. But obviously, when someone loses a sight, their other senses do become heightened, mostly because they're relying on those mostly now. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, and it's an interesting mixed bag of things because, uh, and I do have, I, most of the, a lot of, um, or I was thinking, I was going to say the later half of the fourth chapter in the book is about, you know, sensory compensation as, as a topic. And, uh, so there are areas where if you take like blind people as a group, which is already kind of difficult to kneel down exactly who that is, because it's something that, People vary so much and like, did, was someone born blind? Were they, are they completely blind? And, you know, or, or if someone becomes blind at an older age, it may not apply. But if you take, uh, like, say, a, a group of people who have been blind since, say, early childhood or, you know, or young adulthood, and you compare them to groups of normally sighted people and you look, you know, look for differences, then, yes, you will find, find some. Um, and, but they're kind of, I mean, it's more like, it's a real, it's, you know, the concept is real. It's a real phenomenon. Mm. But Daredevil, of course, is like a kind of the fantasy version of that that phenomenon. Right. Um, so, I mean, in reality, it, it's kind of marginal. But, I mean, it, it, it mostly boils down to kind of what the brain is doing. And, and again, also kind of how, because um, another important point that I, I try to make is that if it appears to us as if people who are blind have superpowers in order to be able to just go on with their lives, you know, their regular lives, then that's probably our lack of imagination uh, talking because generally, of course, people, humans are, are very sort of flexible and we, we adapt to different, you know, different challenges. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's also kind of a very human thing for people to do. But um, 
so yeah, it, it, it's a real phenomenon, but it's much more, let's see, modest compared to what you, what you see in the comics. And especially in the 2003 movie, which I will, I have always defended that movie, especially if you watch the director's mm-hmm. cut, the director's yeah, cut's yeah, a yeah. much better film, um, yes. regardless of, you know, people nitpick that one. But anyway, we got the, uh, the Netflix series and it explored mm-hmm. in a different way. The movie though, almost with, uh, like a, this, uh, the sequence with the rain falling down and he's able to kind yeah. of pick out stuff like echolocation, like bats, obviously yeah. that's a real thing. Echolocation in bats. That's how they did kind of use sonar. They hear the sounds mm-hmm. pinging off other things. So they kind of combine that a little bit with, like you said, sensory compensation to give the kind mm-hmm. of idea of what Daredevil does. Right. Um, I think the movie is interesting because it's very specifically, I mean, at least what they're going for is to have the quote-unquote radar sense be strict echolocation. But of course, they're not perfectly strict about it. I mean, I remember there's one scene in the movie where there's um they have that um visual effect that they do the kind of bluish tint of thing mm-hmm. where uh, i think where matt is at the party where he meets electra for like the second time and it's the the special effects filter has has like smoke from somebody's cigarette kind of yeah. bounce off yeah. of electra's <laughs> face and i mean i don't really need to point out why that wouldn't work <laughs> i don't think but i mean so they do take you know, liberties with it. And I, I think it's, it's also, it's interesting to see how the, how they visualize it in different, um, different media. Like I've been kind of a critic of the, the world on fire effect too. And in, in the, uh, um, in the show. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the, uh, the, the special effects filter from the movie is actually slightly better, but it's got, it's got, it's, it's uh, I mean, inconsistencies and sort of like, you know, illogical uh, bits to it also. And I should mention, too, that being Matt Murdock, the audio version of the, or I shouldn't yes. say the audio book version, that just became available recently. I believe we were talking earlier and you said you just finished mm-hmm. recording the entire thing. So it's, it's out and available? It, it's out and available right now. It's available on Spotify and I think Google Play. And the way that works, I mean, just, you know, uh, self-publishing this book. And I mean, it was a, you know, uh, a, deliberate choice on my part to self-publish because I already had a bit of a platform. And when you're new in the market, they're going to have you do all the marketing for your book anyway. So might as well go straight to the self-publishing route, which is, you know, much, much easier these days and becoming more popular. Um, So yes, I've I've gone that same route with the audiobook as well. And I've recorded it myself. I've edited myself and it turned out pretty, pretty well. I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. Um, but then what happens is like you go through the process of uploading it through these different distributors and they, they will distribute in turn to all of these different vendors uh, that most people are familiar with. And they don't appear, you know, you know, available everywhere at the same time. So I'm thinking Audible is going to be like in two or three weeks or something. And it's going to pop up eventually within the next month. It's going to be pretty much everywhere where you would normally look for an audiobook. So, so, um, Yeah. <laughs> And I'm wondering, so obviously, like we mentioned, the biotech engineer, you, you've mm-hmm. studied this, you've got Daredevil on yeah. the mind. When, when you're watching something, because I know that the one that springs to mind is Morbius, which is not a great yeah. movie, but they also yeah. do things with the echolocation. So uh-huh. as, as a scientist, are you able to kind of shut that part of your brain off and just enjoy a movie? Or are you, are you sitting there going, oh, man, not only was the acting bad, but they got all that scientific stuff wrong? 
So we're going to get that answer to that question in just a moment. But I want to make sure we tell you about our new sponsor that's come on board, Steve's Hot Dogs. If you're a fan of The Urge, you remember Stevie Ween, the front man? He's got a hot dog place he's opened, I think, 2011. So it's been at it for more than a decade. I've been there several times, and he's got all the Star Wars memorabilia in his shop. It's a great place to go if you're just looking for a classic hot dog, but he's got different twists on hot dogs as well. Hawaii Five O dog. They even have a veggie dog if you're a vegan. That's fine. Steve will hook you up with uh, a great hot dog there as well. They do catering. If you've got an event coming up, I know a lot of, uh, you know, it's, uh, the, you've got graduation coming up here soon, you know, right around the corner in May. There's all sorts of reasons why you might want to have a catered event. Steve's Hot Dogs. I mean, go to a local business for crying out loud, and uh, that'd be a great way to be something fun for a corporate or a private event. You can check out one of their locations, and my executive producer, Joey B, would just tell me they've got a place down there at the new soccer park. So if you want to go down there a little early grab a couple dogs before the game that's a great idea as well check out the website steve's hot dogs stl.com we're gonna have some promo codes pretty soon that we'll be able to hook you guys up with so you can get some discounts on your dogs that's uh, nothing better than saving a little money while you're being well fed once again the website steve's hot dogs stl.com very glad to have them on as a brand new sponsor here on geek to me radio we were talking with Christine Hannafalk uh, right before we took that little quick break to tell you about Steve's, and we asked her about being a scientist. Can you shut your brain off and just kind of enjoy a movie when you're watching something like Daredevil or Morbius, or is that kind of impossible to do? That was just I awful. Mean, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, usually it's uh, I, I can I can shut. I mean, the thing is when you have a character that I mean, let's go even further than than Morbius. Let's look at, you know, Doctor Strange or something like that. Mm. There are I mean, there's this class of characters that, you know, I would describe as sort of magical characters. Like we're not expecting anything they do to actually make sense. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of set that aside and just kind of enjoy it. Um, And even I mean, you know, if you look at the comics, there's like um, I think um, it was um, during uh peter david's like x factor run uh, many many years ago that i kind of fell in love with like the multiple man jamie maddox yeah yeah and i mean that's a a character whose powers are like you know completely implausible and just i mean downright silly but i like that's not like if i read a comic like that i'm not going to think about the science i'm going to have more fun with just sort of um the the philosophical side of it i think it's kind of fascinating to have like this character who makes like clones of himself that he sends out into the world and then they come back and rejoin and everything and i thought that was super fascinating so i think depending on the on the character and the context and the premise it it depends like i mean i have um uh, a friend of mine who's uh, she she's actually a research scientist she and i were uh, you know many many years ago we were watching um, it was either Mission to Mars or Red Planet. Uh, that, I, those movies that came out around the same time and were both about Mars. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the one that's not very good of the two of them. I, I can never remember which one. But there's a scene in it where they have like a stretch of DNA that's about 12 or 14 base pairs long. And it comes up on screen and someone in the cast says, oh, look, it's human. And we, of course, asked you know, scientifically trained, find this scene hilarious because it's like, you know, just the the idea that anyone would actually have the human genome memorized, number one. (laughs) And number two, that a stretch of 12 base pairs would somehow be unique to any any particular, um, not just any particular um, organism, but even to one, you know, 
I mean, that's the kind of repeat that that statistically would appear in any genome many, many, many ah. times. So, so it's just sort of like that's how you maybe sometimes watch movies like that and can kind of laugh at it. Um, but uh, no, I, I can usually set it aside. I think the thing for me that with with Daredevil is that, and the reason I am kind of more nitpicky about Daredevil is that he, unlike a lot of characters, actually has the potential to come sort of close. Mm-hmm. To like, he is someone who can be kind of understood scientifically, and and of course you're going to have to stretch that a little bit. You're going to have to, uh, you know, move some boundaries, and and uh, you know he's not strictly realistic, of course, but he comes much closer than a lot of other characters, and and I think because he can be approached in a way that's more kind of rational and kind of rule governed, I tend to kind of expect a little bit more, or at least hope for a little bit more. And I think uh, one thing I kind of want to you know, kind of accomplish with this book has been to just put that into people's heads, whether they are readers of Daredevil or, you know, hopefully writers of Daredevil, to realize that you can actually approach this character in sort of a rule-governed way and have that actually guide you, you know. And when you do break the rules, you're aware of which rules you're, which rules you're breaking, pretty much. And obviously Daredevil being a Marvel property and Marvel being owned by <laughs> Disney now, and we know Disney is very litigious. I suppose, uh, did you have to, did, were you worried about clearing anything? Did you reach out to either Marvel Studios, Marvel Comics, or Disney just to say, hey, I'm doing this just to kind of make sure you weren't treading on uh, verboten ground? Uh, no, I didn't. And uh, the genre of books where you have, you know, everything from, uh, sort of Batman and philosophy to, you know, science of the Avengers. And, and I mean, it's a whole whole kind of genre of books. Some of them probably have been cleared. A lot of them have not. And they will usually have something written uh, where it says like, you know, um, not the official, this is not an official book. This has not been licensed or da, 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 you know. Uh, and, and because, uh, I mean, I think uh, are Marvel aware that this book exists? And yes, yeah, some people of Marvel, Marvel, probably are and i've also given the book to a bunch of the a bunch of former daredevil writers oh, and, nice. and artists yeah yes i've been able to do that at conventions and stuff and i've reached out and have you know sent copies to to some of my uh favorite past writers and some of whom i've been in contact with with before but uh you know generally though since, since this is a kind of book that falls under sort of commentary and critique um it's i uh, i mean i'm pretty sure that this is a very obvious fair use uh use of the property and there are no images or anything in it because that would get you into uh more of that that kind of territory i've also not even the artwork on the book is meant to be sort of kind of i mean like a, a daredevil fan will recognize the image of the glasses yeah yeah um which is by the way that that piece of art is by uh uh, popular in the Daredevil fandom artist Mugigi. You can find her on, on Instagram and Twitter and all those places. Um, and so I knew I couldn't go with a depiction of the character, mm-hmm. but if you go with a pair of glasses, it will connect, you know, readers to the character without being something that's obviously, you know, uh, off limits. So I've been sort of like conscious of it, but I also, uh, I can't think of any, I, I mean, fair use wise, this is a pretty clear uh, case in my mind of, of fair use. So. And you mentioned giving the book to writers and some of the artists. And mm-hmm. do, as you were writing it, did you reach out to any of them to say, hey, just kind of curious, when you were writing this segment, did you take mm-hmm. into consideration, did you have any input on the book from any of the writers or artists? 
no, I, I didn't. And I'm thinking that if I ever do like a second edition, I would want to do that and maybe add like a, an interview or something or even have someone uh, write a preface. Uh, I, I didn't, I do, I mean, I, uh, mention a conversation or sort of written conversation, uh, on my blog with, with Paula Rivera, uh, that I reference in the book. So, so I guess that kind of, <laughs> you know, he, he, we didn't talk, um, about this book specifically, but we did talk about one, um, specific instance of kind of the, the radar, his, his, his take on the radar, uh, mm. art, uh, during that run. And that I referenced in the book, but uh, no, I, I didn't. I was thinking of, of doing that, but I also kind of had a very clear um, view of how I wanted to sort of approach it as kind of, this is what I'm seeing as a reader. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what I'm experiencing. This is what I'm guessing are, you know, behind some of these creative decisions. So um, it becomes very much sort of a fan's journey, like a, hopefully a knowledgeable fan, <laughs> right. a fan's journey, fan's journey into, into this material and like what, what I'm taking away from it. So it, it kind of, I think for like a potential second edition that, um, that would be, that would be great. But, but also, I mean, in terms of, of, um, uh, also kind of what this book is about, I mean, a large sections of the book goes pretty heavily into the science Mm-hmm. So there are several chapters where, of course, I mean, it all connects, it all connects back to, to Daredevil. But I mean, I feel like in order to kind of run this thought experiment along with my readers, I do need to go pretty deep into the actual science of it. So um, and that was also kind of a risk um, that I that I took. And I did have uh, I did have a professional um, editor work with me on the first draft. And it was kind of after talking to him and having him come back with, with comments that I decided to, yes, it's okay to lean into the science. Um, I was, I was telling my friends that, Oh, what if there's too much science in my science book? But <laughs> after, after hearing back from him, from him and how he felt that those sections were very, very interesting and well-written, I felt like, you know, yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go ahead and trust my readers to be into that. And if they're not into it, you can skip those chapters, honestly. But I did want it to be like where I, kind of like you know we're going down we're going to the cell membrane we're going into the nervous system we're doing all of this thing all these things we're looking at the physics of sound and and light and and whatever um and then we kind of work our way from there back into kind of the the comics in order to kind of make a distinction between sort of what, what what's physically impossible what's biologically impossible how could you kind of and uh you know how could you sort of whittle with some of these things um or wiggle rather, sorry. Um, and, um, and that's, um, yeah, so that, that's, that's another thing that this book's about. And I also want readers to maybe learn more about how their own senses work as well. I think it's something that, uh, I mean, I'm, I think I'm a fairly quite a, kind of philosophically minded person. And I do think about these things all the time. And like, how is it, what is reality? What is consciousness? All of those things. So I think just from, from that point of view too, I, it's just such an interesting topic. And I think Daredevil is, um, is an interesting character too. We can, we can use him to learn more about science. Then we can use science to learn more about Daredevil. So it kind of works both ways. So that's how I've been 
approaching it. And obviously, uh, with comic books, I've been been a reader since I was in grade school, and you Mm -hmm. see comics becoming more and more realistic. People, uh, you know, obviously, we have Google now. We can look up and go, well, that couldn't happen. And people looking up how things would work on, you know, was this actually a thing? Because some people just can't turn off their brain and just suspension of disbelief. But the comic books have become more grounded in reality. And we see that like with the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, even becoming more grounded in reality, less less Uh Tim Burton-esque. So I guess I would think that this is actually probably the best time for a book like this to come out when people do want that. Hey, could this really happen? I would assume that would, this would work in your favor for for the book. I I hope so. I do think though, that there's a distinction between, uh, movies and and entertainment in general becoming more grounded and then becoming more quote-unquote realistic to me those are two very different things Mm. and i think there's there's even to me uh even if we look at at the comics um like one of the most sort of gritty realistic quote-unquote grounded runs in recent memory was that of brian michael bendis and alex malib and um but I don't think the the sort of the science of the senses were particularly grounded at all during that period. Um, so there's a difference between sort of having characters, like even very fantastical characters set in sort of a real type of landscape or uh, urban environment that feels very kind of natural and close to home and having their powers necessarily be kind of reined in by any sort of scientific thinking. Um, those seem to be kind of separate to me. Um, and uh, I do think that the show in general um, did a pretty good job of like not going completely, you know, um, completely crazy with it. Although, of course, I mean, there are some scenes that that don't make sense and other scenes that I think are really well written. So there's definitely that potential. And I do think that it, yeah, having things not be like too crazy is something that works well with sort of a grounded character like Daredevil anyway. Yeah, and Daredevil, like I said, he's one of my favorites. Uh, one of the, the street-level characters like Daredevil mm-hmm. and Punisher are always kind of more interesting uh, than the people who have the godlike powers like Thor and, the, yeah. and you know everything like that. Um, any, yeah. any plans to do a deep dive on another character down the road? Maybe the science of Iron Man and his armor or something like that <laughs> or anything coming up that... Any any uh, tickling ideas in the back of your head? Uh, no. Um, like I said, I think I think for me, Daredevil has been just such a special character in my life, and and I I don't think and I think being able to write a book like this, um, it it's hard to do about very many other characters, honestly. Uh, so I think this has very very much been like one of them. I mean, this has been. Definitely getting this book, finishing this book was really on my bucket list for like my entire life. It's, I was like, I can die happy now. <laughs> I think I think that, that the point where I decided that, you know, I, I've been working on it on and off for like almost a decade. And then about a year and a half ago or maybe two years ago, I decided to um, to just get it done. And it was at the point where I was thinking, like, if I were told that I had a year to live, I would prioritize finishing this book. Hmm. And, you know, and just as a kind of a tip to everybody out there, if you do have something in mind that you, you know, that you feel that strongly about, do it, just do it, make it happen. Uh, You know, put aside, you know, uh, carve out whatever time you need to just get it done. You'll thank yourself. 
um, because for me, it became the kind of thing where like, no, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do it. Um, and I think my, my passion for Daredevil specifically has been a big part of that. And I don't, I do think, I mean, I, I, I would be interested in writing, writing more in general, like writing other books and other topics, mm-hmm. but not necessarily, um, not necessarily, uh, another superhero though. I'm just thinking so, the biotech engineer in you, you can find out yeah. sticking an electric arc reactor into someone's chest with that really work to keep shrapnel a lot of the heart. I'm just, I was always wondering that when I'm watching the first Iron Man movie, but uh, so yeah. it's one of those things that, that might be a topic for another book. I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking of, although that probably, I don't, you know, depending on what kinds of metals you're using, I'm always thinking like, uh, that's going to be, that's going to be icky. And then you have to have that interface between like the, you know, a, a biological system and, and, a metal surface right. and how does that work? And yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of question marks around that <laughs> stuff. Uh, definitely. <laughs> so yeah. And I do, I mean, my mind does kind of work that way. Like I do watch that stuff and be like, Hmm. Well, really? we'll wait, maybe leave yeah. that one to another author then, since it sounds like daredevil is your guy. Yeah. Uh, again, the book, being Matt Burnock, one fan's journey into the science of Daredevil. If you're enjoying the Chip Zardsky run right now on Daredevil, you can pick up Christine's book and have that as a little companion piece uh, as you're reading the current series or going back reading any of the other great stuff, right? Frank Miller, yeah, D.G. Chichester, yeah. and, and Nascenti. <laughs> uh, it's always always nice to have that little grounded in reality comparison to what's going on and what you're reading in the comic books. Uh, where can people find you online if they want to keep up with you? Sure. I'm, uh, I, I do like, I don't update my blog as, as often as I used to, but I'm at the, uh, www.theothermurdochpapers.com, um, which is of course a play on the, um, uh, story arc by, by Bendis Malib that was called the Murdoch papers. So this is the other Murdoch papers. And I am on Twitter as Chris underscore T O M P for the other Murdoch papers. Um, I am, let's see, where else am I? Well, I do have, there's a fan page on Facebook and I do have, uh, an Instagram page as well. The other Murdoch, Murdoch papers. So, and if you want to send me an email, it's the other Murdoch papers at gmail.com. Perfect. And but, uh, yeah, people can, uh, pick up the book at their local comic everywhere. book store probably, or they can order it obviously at their, at their local bookstore, but obviously you can get it online as well, especially in the yeah, audio you, form. Yeah. You can get it most places on online. Um, so yeah, I mean, Amazon, but also you, you can buy it through Barnes and Noble online, um, and stuff. Yeah. Perfect. And we're looking forward to hearing the audio book, uh, Christine's <laughs> voice, Christine Hannafalk. I appreciate your time so much. Thanks very much for the time. And, uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again very soon. Well, thank you. That was a great conversation. I appreciate both my guests. We had Mackenzie Lee talking about Winter Soldier Cold Front. And now this one we just finished up here with Christine Hanna Falk. Her book, Being Matt Murdock, One Fan's Journey into the Science of Daredevil. Uh, Great stuff to read out there. Hopefully you enjoyed these interviews. Uh, Next week we'll be back with another live show. Uh, we'll have uh, probably some of our terrific, not terrific con, Pensacon interviews. Too many cons on the brain. I apologize. But I appreciate your listening each week, subscribing, and following us on social media. Until next week, my friends. It's not in the way you watch I sound be. It's not in the way you watch the flash. It's not in the way you love Scotty Young Arts. It's not in the
Good night. Hey kids, are your parents about to buy you a shiny new toy from Amazon? Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? Well, don't be selfish. Share some of that money with us. Before going on Amazon, make sure to type in bit.ly slash geek to me in the web browser. It will look just like Amazon.com, except it'll say referral geek to me radio up top. And then when you check out, a tiny percentage will go to support the show without costing you one cent more. So before your parents get you that gizmo, gadget, or widget, make sure they type in bit.ly slash geek to me in the web browser. Bit.ly slash geek to me. Bit.ly slash geek to me.